Taming nuclear fusion, the energy source that drives our sun, has been a goal of physicists since the start of the atomic age. In an era of global warming, an energy-generating method that produces no CO2 and almost no nuclear waste is now more than ever a tantalizing goal. But what happens routinely in our sun has proven hard to tame here on planet Earth. In fact, it's been so hard that despite extensive and innovative engineering approaches, we're still not knocking on the door of success. Muddying the water further, 20 years ago last month, the world was stunned by an announcement by two researchers in Utah that they had produced nuclear fusion reactions with simple devices operating at room temperature. Cold fusion was not so simple, it turned out. But last month, scientists again claimed that they found intriguing signs of low-temperature fusion of hydrogen nuclei. Science writer Charles Seif has taken a look at the world of nuclear fusion, both the hot and allegedly cold type, with his new book. It's titled, Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. Charles Seif is an associate professor of journalism at New York University, and he's written for New Scientist, Scientific American, The Economist, and many other publications. He's won numerous awards for his books and joins us now from New York. Thank you for joining us, Charles Seif. Thank you so much for having me. I want to, I'm really keen to talk about some of these recent headlines about, uh, about, about cold fusion, although I know the proponents hate that term. But I think we, we best lay out some groundwork, maybe with a, a thumbnail outline of what, um, what nuclear fusion is, as opposed to the splitting of the atom term we associate with nuclear power. Yeah, well, fusion is a, the reaction that powers our sun, as you mentioned. Uh, it works because Einstein's equation e equals mc squared says that you can turn a tiny, a, bit, a tiny amount of matter into an enormous amount of energy. And when you take two very light atoms like hydrogen and slam them together at very high temperatures and high forces, you can get them to stick, and the process liberates a little bit of matter and turns it into energy. Uh, and this uh, goes on in the center of the sun. It goes on in nuclear devices, a hydrogen bomb takes heavy hydrogen and turns it into energy. And all fusion devices work in this manner, uh, taking light atoms, sticking them together, converting mass to energy. And of course, our sun, large as it is, with huge pressures and huge heat, um, is a self-sustaining thing. But I guess that uh, a lot of the crux of the issue here is it's hard to get those kind of conditions on Earth. Absolutely. The sun works because it is so enormous that the gas holds itself together by gravity. That you just put a big chunk of gas uh, many, many times the size of our Earth uh, together, and it automatically compresses itself, keeps itself together, heat, heats itself, and the reaction starts going. But this uh, chunk of gas has to be huge. Um, Jupiter in our solar system, which is still many times larger than the Earth, is a chunk of hydrogen which is not large enough to get a fusion reaction going. So even for a small star, uh, it's got to be extraordinarily large. To get a fusion reaction going on the Earth, uh, we have to artificially heat something uh, to tens or hundreds of millions of degrees and compress it, and that is not easy. Um, the only way we can get it to work and liberate more energy than we uh, get in is with a atom bomb. You actually need to uh, set off a fusion reaction with a fission bomb. I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that, that all H-bombs are also A-bombs. That's right. That's yeah. right. They're, they're two-stage devices. One's, one's, uh, the primary is just a, a Hiroshima-type atom bomb, uh, which is used to set off the bigger reaction uh, called the secondary. 
Well, when they were first putting together the Manhattan Project, there was some interest by some people, particularly one would note Edward Teller, who wanted to go for the fusion bomb right away. And this, this really resulted in quite a fight that, that, that changed the course of history in the 50s. You talked a bit about that in the book. Can we kind of go into that a little bit? Yes, yes. Uh, Edward Teller is a fascinating character. Uh, he was uh, born in Hungary and emigrated to the United States to work on the Manhattan Project. Enrico Fermi, a, a, a physicist uh, and a colleague of his, said he was the only monomaniac with more than one mania. <laughs> and his two mania were uh, communists and fusion. And he absolutely hated communists uh, because uh, a number of soldiers were uh, in Hungary had that torn up his home. Uh, and he loved fusion because it uh, offered the opportunity to keep the communists at bay. And even during the Manhattan Project, when uh, uh, scientists like J. Robert Oppenheimer, Richard Feynman, Hans Bethe, and many of the great names of physics of the 20th century were trying to get the basic fission reaction, uh, just any sort of nuclear bomb working, um, uh, Teller was a step ahead. He was busy trying to build a fusion bomb, which would be even much, much more powerful than uh, what was eventually delivered on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, the first fusion bomb uh, was almost a thousand times larger uh, than what leveled Hiroshima. So uh, he was right uh, that there was extraordinary power uh, available from uh, fusion reactions, but uh, it was over a decade away. And the rest of the scientists were kind of baffled because they figured, we want to win this war, we need this weapon quickly. And Teller wasn't very helpful in that quest. <laughs> well, once they proved that H-bombs would work, and they went out and vaporized a few islands out in the Pacific, there, there was a push to show that this did have some peaceful applications, and you, you also talk about that in the book. Some were advocating using the bombs directly to maybe to dig a bigger Suez Canal or explore, explore for oil, and uh, that turned out to be rather overly optimistic. Teller was always overly optimistic, and uh, he, he, he thought uh, at first, when he did the calculations, he thought that fusion would be really easy to start. In fact, it would be so easy to start that it would destroy the entire Earth uh, in a gigantic fusion reaction immediately. Uh, luckily, he was wrong on that count. Uh, he was also wrong that uh, fusion weapons would be useful for helping humanity. Uh, he wanted to dig a new Panama Canal, dig a new Suez Canal. He wanted to melt water to uh, melt ice to yield fresh water. He wanted to mass-produce diamonds with nuclear weapons. Uh, he wanted to close off the Straits of Gibraltar and make the Mediterranean a freshwater lake for irrigating North Africa. <laughs> he thought it would be easy. He even said at one point, we should nuke the moon just to see what would happen. Uh, he, 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 almost the archetype of, of a mad scientist, Dr. Strangelove, is, is in part modeled upon him. Um, of course, none of these plans really came to fruition in any large ways. Um, we did try some uh, peaceful nuclear explosions to liberate oil and gas reserves under a project codenamed Plowshare, but it was mostly a disaster. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to, and the oil and gas it released was radioactive and unusable. Uh, but Teller kept pushing for the project because it was a way to help uh, him uh, justify building new and fancy nuclear weapons. Yeah, no one can ever say Teller didn't think big. But uh, but back in the 50s, uh, Teller and others were thinking that really all one had to do to contain this plasma of, of, of nuclei and electrons was sort of put it in a, a magnetic bottle. I mean, you talk about that sun in a bottle and then and it fuse away. And that, that simply didn't pan out. Can you, can you tell us why not? Yeah, it's as... Uh, said earlier, to get fusion uh, 
in a, a fusion reaction going in hydrogen. You need to heat this gas up to tens or hundreds of millions of degrees. And what do you contain a plasma that hot in? It, it will eat through any bottle. Um, it, it expands and tries to dissipate, killing any reaction you get started. So the, the trick is, how do you confine and heat a plasma for long enough that you get a fusion reaction going? And unless you allow a nuclear device to be used, um, it's a real trick. Um, one of the ways that was floated in the 1950s, early 1950s, was using a magnetic bottle. It turns out hot uh, hydrogen feels magnetic fields. It, it can be confined by it in, in a way that, say, a liquid can be confined by glass. And um, there was some intense work early on to figure out uh, whether that could be used to have a smaller reaction going that didn't destroy cities. And if you got that going, you'd basically have unlimited power. Unfortunately, that too was much more difficult than it looked at first. Um, the magnetic bottles leaked terribly. Um, you, can, you couldn't even get it hot enough to start fusing. It was uh, more than a decade before they got even a few fusion reactions going and a, even a very powerful magnetic bottle. And there were a lot of false starts. Um, in Britain, a group uh, initially thought that they had uh, fusion energy uh, right there at their fingertips. They announced it in 1958. The world was celebrating. The Russians congratulated them. And then they had to withdraw their uh, paper because it turns out that they were wrong. Well, I remember very well. I think it was maybe the Jerry Ford administration, mid-1970s perhaps. The Soviet Union stuns the world by offering up a design they'd been working on called a tokamak to see if maybe other nuclear engineers could work out some of the bugs in the design they couldn't figure out. And I gather that uh, the great Russian uh, physicist Andrei Sekharov had something to do with that. But, uh, but it turned out that uh, it was released to the world, but others couldn't solve those problems either, at least not to date. No, no. Uh, the tokamak is a brilliant design. Uh, came out of Russia, as you mentioned. And it is by far, at this point, the best magnetic bottle that we have, the best hope we have for achieving fusion in the laboratory. And in fact, the, the biggest uh, fusion project in the world right now, breaking ground in the south of France, is a tokamak design. It's a, a Russian-style magnetic bottle. Uh, the problem is no tokamak that has ever been built thus far has created more energy through fusion reactions than you put in. Uh, it's, it's, it's an energy-sucking device rather than an energy-producing device. And uh, hopefully ITER, which is, uh, they say, $10 billion, is probably going to be double that before it's done, uh, will produce more energy than it, it, it consumes. But it's still an open question. And even if you do achieve that, um, harnessing that energy, turning it into usable electricity is another trick. So it's going to be at least, if everything goes well, it'll be another 35, 40 years before we get a fusion power plant. And I suspect it's going to be a lot longer than that. Well, we would be remiss, I think, if we didn't mention one other method that's been tried at Edward Teller's baby, the University of California's Lawrence Livermore Lab. Uh, they went in big for lasers back in the 80s to try and jumpstart fusion, and then that, of course, also has not yet proven itself. Yes. Uh, the, the, uh, speaking of billions of dollars, there's a <laughs> 4 or $5 billion project out of Livermore called NIF, uh, which just turned on the, its full beams, uh, 192 beams. And it's taking enormous amounts of energy and, and projecting laser beams from all directions on this tiny pellet uh, the size of uh, kind of a, 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 the head of a thumbtack. Um, and it's, it compresses the, the hydrogen and creates a tiny little star, but uh, it consumes much, much more energy than it produces. 
And if you press the scientists, they'll admit that it's really not very good for weapons work. And uh-huh. even then, it's, it's, it's not so obvious how important it is to weapons work. So it, in, in some ways, it's uh, a, a, a money-sucking device more than an energy-sucking <laughs> device. Well, let's talk about what happened 20 years ago. I, I, I was stunned. I think the world was stunned when uh, these guys, Pons and Fleischmann, announced they'd achieved cold fusion using basically, I guess, amount, what amounted to a battery, a bar of palladium metal, and some heavy water. And, uh, and their, their method of announcement kind of was viewed as rather suspect right off the, the, right of the get-go. And the science turned out to be kind of dubious in the end as well. Can you kind of walk us through what happened? Yes. Uh, uh, one day the world was shocked to a press conference in, uh, held out of the University of Utah. Um, two chemists, uh, one of whom was, was very highly regarded, uh, a fellow of the Royal Society, um, Martin Fleischmann, uh, along with his colleague Stanley Pons, announced that they had solved the problem of energy, that basically they had infinite energy at their fingertips. Um, with just $100,000 in a small hunk of uh, palladium metal, they had achieved fusion. And the idea was that instead of heating something to, hundreds, uh, to, to tens or hundreds of millions of degrees, uh, they artificially caused these hydrogens to collide by sticking them inside a tight lattice of metal. Um, if it was true, it would, it, would, it would be tremendous, and the world reacted with astonishment. But there were some immediate problems uh, with the science. Um, if, in fact, fusion were happening in the traditional sense, and they were getting as much energy out as they claimed, um, uh, the neutrons, the the, part, uh, the uncharged particles streaming off the reaction, should have instantly killed everyone in the building. <laughs> so the fact that they were alive uh, meant that something fishy was going on. And as the weeks went on, uh, and as physicists started looking um, at, at the reactions, it became more and more dubious that they weren't actually getting neutrons, and that they were deceiving themselves. And it, it became a, kind of a schismatic issue. Uh, the chemists were on uh, the cold fusion side for a while, uh, and the physicists were against it. It was kind of an interdisciplinary issue because uh, the chemists always hate physicists, and they want to show up the physicists. So they were really rooting for cold fusion to work. Uh, it also became a red state, blue state thing. Um, that uh, University of Utah was red state heartland, uh, and these elite uh, intellectual physicists from the coasts were, were busy uh, uh, trying to tear down the claims. So the Wall Street Journal was very pro-cold fusion, uh, while some other uh, publications were very anti-cold fusion. So it, it, it really kind of uh, uh, became a, a, a tinderbox, uh, and it st- stopped very rapidly becoming about the science and became about politics and other things. Um, as time went on and cold fusion became debunked, um, it, it stopped being front and center in, uh, in public debate, but it bubbled on for decades and it's still going on. Uh, there's still uh, cold fusion experiments uh, in, in naval research laboratories and, and other laboratories around the nation. It never quite died out, even though it was very clear that the initial experiments and, and subsequent experiments had nothing. Uh, there was nothing really there worth worth mentioning. Yeah, but the term bubbled up, I, or bubbled on, I guess is pretty uh, apropos. Uh, you did cover in the book a prominent case, and we hear a lot about this, about some extraordinary claims about 
perhaps using imploding bubbles to generate fusion, and you wrote about it for a, a science magazine. You wrote about what happened at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which is, which is still reverberating, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when I was at Science Magazine, this paper comes in from Oak Ridge, and Oak Ridge is a national lab, a very, very solid place, and uh, from a researcher whom I knew uh, named Rusi Taliarka. And he was a, a solid researcher. Um, he had claimed uh, that he had... Um, and, and his colleagues had solved the problem uh, using a uh, uh, sonoluminescence, which is a phenomenon which is not very well understood. Uh, it turns out that if you sh- uh, zap liquids with sound waves in just the right way, you get these bubbles that are created and collapse very rapidly and heat up to the point where they emit little flashes of light. Taliarkon claimed that by uh, using this uh, a phenomenon just the right way, he got these bubbles to heat up to the point where they caused a little fusion reaction in the center of the bubble. Um, It was a little implausible, but it was not so far out there. It wasn't as far out there as the original cold fusion claims. Mm -hmm. And it was, in fact, published in Science Magazine, a peer-reviewed journal. So it got the imprimatur. It it passed the initial laugh test of a number (laughs) of scientists. But as it turns out, um, evidence, it's still... still ongoing. Uh, Taliarkin still claims to have um, a phenomenon there, but the uh, preponderance of evidence is that this was another case where a researcher, lured by this uh, idea of of solving the world's energy crises, was not paying attention to uh, evidence that was telling him that he was barking up the wrong tree. We're speaking with author Charles Seif about his book Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. Well, we, we, we're right up to the present, I think, at this point, because, uh, you know, fresh from today's headlines, uh, it, it, tabletop fusion has resurfaced with some, with some, well, some interesting findings from, reported from, I guess it's Naval Warfare Systems Command in San Diego. They've been using some low-tech methods of, I guess, picking up alpha particles, and they're saying, well, they think that we're seeing some effects of cold fusion here. New Scientist magazine's reported on it. They're, they're quoting MIT scientists. Pretty interesting buzz going on right now. Uh, what do you know about this latest round of, of data? Well, uh, I haven't seen the paper myself, but I, I'm familiar with the research, and I'm familiar with the groups, and I'm familiar with all the people who are, are commenting. Um, and, and it's no longer called cold fusion. It's called low-energy nuclear reactions, like a PC term for it. And this is more or less the same story. It's, uh, the, the holdouts from 1989 who still believed in cold fusion are still uh, claiming to find uh, nuclear reactions in metal. Um, the problem is they haven't produced the telltale signs that tell you you've got a fusion reaction. And these are uh, the, the easiest ones to spot are neutrons, neutral particles. Um, just as uh, Pons and Fleischmann should have been fried uh, <laughs> by the uh, nuclear reactions uh, going on in their, in their cells. Um, if you actually have a fusion reaction going on, you should be able to see neutrons, that, that they should be uh, hitting you on the head. And if I recall correctly, the latest result is uh, looking at uh, microscope slides of metals and seeing a few tracks that may or may not be neutrons or may or may not be alpha particles. If they're there, they should be really easy to spot. Uh, one challenge that was put forth uh, in the early days of cold fusion by physicists was, if you've really got something, make a device that can heat a cup of tea for me. <laughs> and no one's done that yet. Yeah. If there's really something there worth studying, um, then I think you, you, you would be able to see that fairly rapidly. 
maybe there's something going on that's involving chemical reactions. Maybe something's funky is going on in palladium. Maybe maybe you get a, a, a chemical reaction. But there's very little question that there's nothing nuclear going on. Yeah, and I think you mentioned, too, regarding Pons and Fleischmann, not only should you get neutrons, they should be a really distinctly sort of fingerprinted energy level that, that tells you that you know what you think's going on is. Yeah, that's, that's right. When you have a, a, a reaction of deuterium, heavy hydrogen, um, it reacts the same way every time. That there's, um, you, you have two branches of the reaction, and every, uh, every time the reaction happens, you either get a, uh, an alpha particle or you get a neutron. And it, it's just, it's there. It's obvious, and these come out with the same energy every time. Uh, it's, it's a smoking gun. And when it happens in uh, magnetic fusion, when it happens in uh, laser fusion, when it happens in any other forms of fusion, there are tabletop fusion methods. Like um, you can, uh, Philo Farnsworth, the inventor of uh, television, had a device which used uh, electric fields to generate fusion uh, neutrons. And the problem is it consumed more energy than it produced. Uh, but he did it. Um, and every time you get it, you can see it. It's just hits you on the head, it smells like fusion, it tastes like fusion, and you, you get no um, real controversy. Um, when people are trying to figure out whether it's fusion or not, and uh, uh, walking around the, 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 the sides and, and looking hard for neutrons, hoping that they're there, um, it's usually a very good sign that it's not real. And I think that all the, the low-energy nuclear reactions so far uh, fall into that category. Well, let's let's uh, let's go back to hot fusion. We know that works. You were talking about the the recent effort of, of world governments here. To, I think to actually throw some some money um, money at the problem. Um, and what's the, and what's the latest on that? With these, with, I guess you you say it's a tokamak. They're going to redesign. Yes, yes, it's it's the world's biggest tokamak, and it, it, it's um, uh, about uh, twenty billion dollars uh, of money, and it's going to be considerably larger than the tokamaks that have been built thus far. And the idea is, if you get enough magnetic power, and you put enough plasma in, and uh, get it running, you can keep it going for a long time, start generating more and more and more energy. And the bigger the tokamak is, the stronger the magnetic fields, the better you can confine your plasma, the longer you can hold on to it, and um, the more energy you produce. And the hope is, that they'll be able to run for 10 minutes at a time. And that would be a tremendous achievement if they do it, that you start a fusion reaction going in the lab and keep it going for 10 minutes and producing energy all the while. Of course, keeping those magnetic fields going requires energy and heating up the plasma requires energy. So in fact, if you look at the energy balance, likelihood is it's still going to consume more energy than it produces. But they have a chance um, of breaking even. and. Uh, the world's, uh, the, the plasma physicists of the world are, are very excited about uh, what this thermonuclear reactor, ITER, will produce over the next few years. Um, the ground has been broken. It's really still in the early phases, and we won't see a plasma until uh, mid-next decade, probably 2017, 2018. Um, but uh, it's going to be an exciting experiment when it happens. Uh, whether it will be the solution to the world's energy supply, uh, energy problems, I, I strongly doubt. But it's still going to be interesting science. Well, the $64,000 question about fusion that's I think, disturbs me and disturbs everybody is that um, um, you have in the book a kind of guarded optimism that, you know, that it, we may, it's theoretically possible, we, we may yet get there, you know, whether it'll ultimately solve the problems. Of course, as you just say, is 
something we'll have to see. But what disturbs me is that people still can't decide, is this really possible? I mean, there's, there's people who just say, well, we're just, you're actually never going to get there. What do you say to that? It's a question of practicality and whether uh-huh. you'll get there in a way that uh, solves problems more than will we ever get there. I, I think if you, if you put hundreds of billions of dollars and made this enormous bottle, yes, you could produce more energy than you consume. Uh, but if you're putting hundreds of billions of dollars and it's producing enough uh, energy to light a couple of Christmas tree lights, <laughs> not worth it. And I, I think that's the real question that we're going to have to ask. And, and, and I, I'd say uh, 50 years down the line, we'll, the technology will be there to start producing fusion energy more than you, you uh, more put out than you, you uh, uh, consume. Uh, but is it cost effective? I mean, if you're spending hundreds of billions of dollars to build these plants, it's not worth it. Also, there's a waste problem. Uh, fusion aficionados like to say that it's clean energy, but it's not really clean. Uh, we've been talking about neutrons. Um, neutrons are the product of any hydrogen fusion reaction, and they're nasty things. Uh, they, they strike the walls of whatever vessel you're using and make it radioactive. And so, uh, in fact, after running a fusion plant for a couple of years, you've got a radioactive vessel that you have to dispose of. And it's not as bad of a problem as nuclear fission reactions. Ordinary power plants produce nastier waste, but the waste problem is still there. So in the short term, in the next 100 years, I, I have to ask, is, is even if you get fusion working, um, fission reactions, ordinary ugly nuclear power plants, um, they, they're cheaper. Uh, the technology is already here. They can be made safer. Uh, and they have a waste problem, but so does it. Uh, so does fusion. So is fusion really helping uh, the world's energy crisis more than fission reactors would right now? And I I tend to think not. I think that over the next couple of generations, um, our eyes should turn to ordinary nuclear power and then perhaps worry about fusion uh, 100 years, 200 years down the line when when, uh, other options are exhausted. Well, as a science journalist, you offer an example in the book of, of, well, something that contrasts with some of what's turned out to be wishful thinking in the case of fusion about a scientist you mentioned. He'd, he thought he'd discovered an extrasolar planet. Turned out he'd made kind of a critical error. Went to a meeting uh, to basically reveal his blunder to the world, embarrassed about it all, and winds up getting applauded by everybody when he admitted he'd, he'd blundered. And I thought that, you know, one learns a lot from mistakes. We all do. And and everybody makes them, and I think people are very forgiving of, of somebody when they, um, when they do that. Scientists, whenever they make mistakes, uh, there's this decision point um, that they have to make. And if they're con- to continue as a scientist, and scientists are theoretically searching after the truth, they have to eviscerate themselves on the public altar. They have, they have to say, I have erred, this is how I've made my mistakes. Um, and they have to retract what may be their life's work. They may, they may have been working on something for 10, 20 years and have to admit that uh, what they were doing was wrong and that their opponents who were saying that they were full of it were absolutely correct. It's a very, very difficult thing to do, but it happens over and over and over again in science. But there's something funny about fusion. There's, there's so much at stake. There's the, the idea that you can solve the world's energy problems all at once. You become a hero the world. The early days when you're doing your research and you start thinking, maybe you have it. The, the, the idea of Nobel Prizes might be glittering in your, your head. <laughs> and um, to turn away from that is extremely difficult. 
And with fusion, over and over and over again, you see people who um, think they've done it. And when there's overwhelming evidence to show that they haven't, they still can't turn away. And this is what happened in Ponton Fleischmann's case. And I think this is what's happened in uh, Rusi Taliarkhan with bubble fusion case. People are unwilling to let go of this dream. It's just too cloying, too beautiful to let go. And if you can't let go of your dream in the face of evidence, you've stopped becoming a scientist. Well, your, your book is very enjoyable. I, I, I recommend it to, to anyone. And, and, I, and I just want to close by noting that uh, a bit of buffoonery I had to laugh at was a fellow I hadn't heard about down in, in Argentina who was claiming Ronald Richter claimed he'd solve fusion back in the 50s and, and was just an utter fraud. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he was a, he was a nut. He was a he was a class A nut. Uh, he would he would invite people to his laboratory and then he would dump gunpowder in his 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 reaction so that it would blow the doors off the off the laboratory and then he would scuttle out and write a fusion on on a piece of paper. Uh, of course, it was, it was an utter fraud, and he embarrassed Juan Perón, uh, the dictator of Argentina, who had backed him. Uh, but, uh, uh, embarrassing dictators is not a very good thing to do, and so he wound up in jail uh, for for wasting uh, millions of dollars of Argentinian uh, currency. Fusion fraud has a long and rich history. The book is Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. We've been speaking with this author, Charles Seif. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Yeah.